Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, The Amazing, Contradicting Joseph Smith. In the early part of the 19th century, Joseph Smith burst upon the religious scene, seemingly bound and determined to overturn and contradict every accepted religious tradition and shibboleth of his day. The Christian world believed that the Bible was the complete word of God. Boom! Joseph Smith produces the Book of Mormon, which he claims to be scripture on a par with the Bible. The Christian world of his day believed that the Bible was without error. Bam! Joseph Smith produces the Joseph Smith translation or inspired version of the Bible in which he goes to the Bible and corrects it from beginning to end. He makes additions, deletions, and revisions throughout the Bible. But not only did Joseph Smith contradict the Christianity of his day in many of its fundamental beliefs, Joseph Smith also contradicted himself. In his short prophetic ministry of 15 years, from 1829 when he dictated the Book of Mormon to 1844 when he was killed, time and time again Joseph Smith contradicted things that he had said previously. Joseph Smith appeared to have no problem contradicting himself, even when he was contradicting statements that he had made or that he had produced which were in Scripture. As a result, his theology was expansive and growing and seemingly able to encompass all things. As Joseph Smith said, the fundamental principle of Mormonism is to accept all truth, no matter where it comes from. And if a person does not accept all truth, he will not be a good Latter-day Saint. I have put together a list of seven times that Joseph Smith contradicted himself, or more specifically stated, seven areas of doctrine in which he contradicted himself during his prophetic ministry. But before I get to that list, I want to talk a little bit about a framework from which I'm going to view these contradictions, because the question that I have and what I want to pose tonight to the audience is, is the fact that Joseph Smith contradicted himself over and over again, is that a bad thing or a good thing? Now, most people would naturally say, well, it's a bad thing if he contradicted himself. But I want to talk about some things before we get to the contradictions to lay a framework from which I'm going to view this issue. And it has to do with science and religion. Now, there are a lot of differences between science and religion, but one difference in particular I want to talk about is the strength of science versus the strength of religion. Here's what I mean. The strength of science is that it is open to change when confronted with new evidence that does not fit the existing paradigm. This is why science is always growing and open and expansive, because anytime new information comes to light that contradicts the existing paradigm or belief system of science, science is willing to change the paradigm in order to incorporate and accommodate the new information and the new facts. An obvious example of this has to do with astronomy. Anciently, people believed that the Earth was the center of the universe. All things revolved around it. Then Galileo takes out his telescope, looks at Jupiter, and sees that Jupiter has moons that revolve around it. Well, this didn't fit the paradigm that everything revolves around the Earth, so a new paradigm came into existence when confronted with the new facts, and that new paradigm was that the Earth is not the center of all things. This became changed to the Earth now revolves around the Sun, which we all understand to be the case today, and then that was refined after that to the Sun itself revolves around the center of our galaxy. At each step, science is willing 
to change its paradigm or belief system in order to incorporate new information. And the result is that science is constantly growing and expanding because it is willing to completely overturn the existing belief system in order to accommodate that new information. Now let's talk about religion. The strength of religion is that it is not open to change when confronted with new evidence that does not fit the existing paradigm. And we know that from the same story of Galileo, who, with his new information and his new paradigm, ran headlong into the Catholic Church that still believed that the earth was the center of everything and that everything revolved around the earth. The religion of Galileo's day had determined, based on its reading of the Bible, that the earth was the center of all things, and religion was unwilling to change that view because it believed that it was correct already. And so religion is unwilling to change because it is based on doctrine that is already firmly in place and considered to be received through revelation or interpretation of revelation or the Bible or scripture or on tradition. The already established basis of religion cannot change because if it were to change, it would challenge the foundation of the currently existing paradigm. Think about this. A religion believes that what it teaches is true. It is not susceptible to change because it comes from a divine source. If religion were to change, then it immediately casts into doubt what it was that it believed formerly. What was believed in the first place no longer can be seen as authoritative or from a divine source, and therefore religion is not willing to change because if it did change, it cast doubt on the former teaching and it also destroys any reason to believe in the new teaching, which now contradicts the former teaching. So in other words, if the currently existing religious paradigm is the result of revelation or interpretation of revelation, then that basis must be correct. If it should change, it can only do so at the expense of showing the former belief was not correct. If the former belief built on revelation is not correct, then how can we have any confidence in any change to that paradigm? That is why religions are so averse to change and will resist change at every step of the way. To the religious believer, this is seen as a strength. The doctrine never changes. So, the strength of science is that it is open to change, but from a religious viewpoint, that is seen as a weakness. And the strength of religion is that it is not open to change, but from a scientific viewpoint, that is seen as a weakness. But which position is really the strongest? Historically, in any confrontation between science and religion, it is always religion that has to ultimately back down. See Galileo versus the Catholic Church. This suggests that science really has the stronger position and that being willing to be open to change, as science is, is the position that is more able to arrive at the truth. This is like the old example of the oak tree and the willow tree in a windstorm. The oak tree is like religion. It stands firm against the winds of change, with the result that it loses a limb or two every now and then. The willow, on the other hand, is more like science in this regard. It bends with the wind and is therefore less susceptible to being broken. The idea of looking at religion from the scientific viewpoint, being open to change, being open to new ideas, is summed up in a quote from William James 
In his book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, William James, of course, was a famous psychologist a hundred years ago, and he gave a series of lectures which later got incorporated into a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. At its heart, this book is a scientific attempt to look at all the different kinds of religious experiences, break them down into general categories, examine them, and see what can be learned from them. In one of his lectures, he talks about the idea that religious beliefs can only come through the human mind. Everything that we know or believe or perceive comes through the human mind, including scientific ideas as well as religious beliefs. And what William James is saying is that in science, we have to make allowances for the instruments that we're using in order to make our measurements and our calculations. Every instrument is going to have some imperfection to it. There's no such thing as a perfect instrument. And science makes allowances for the imperfection of the instruments being used. What he argues, though, is that on the other hand, with religious beliefs, we have to make allowances for the fact that we're not using perfect instruments. Our human minds are not perfect. There are imperfections in our human mind that we're using to make our conclusions, to make our arguments, to formulate our beliefs. And what he talks about in this quote is that allowing for the imperfections of the human mind is a superior way of arriving at religious truth than it is to dogmatically assert that what we have already concluded is in fact the truth with a capital T and cannot be changed. Here's what he says. He who acknowledges the imperfectness of his instrument, the human mind in this case, and makes allowance for it in discussing his observations, is in a much better position for gaining truth than if he claimed his instrument to be infallible, or is dogmatic or scholastic theology less doubted in point of fact for claiming, as it does, to be in point of right, undoubtable. So here he's comparing the idea of keeping your mind open and acknowledging the fact that your human mind is not a perfect instrument with dogmatism and asking the question, are those who are dogmatic about their religious beliefs less doubted simply because they claim to be undoubtable? Here's that question again that he asks. Or is dogmatic or scholastic theology less doubted in point of fact for claiming, as it does, to be in point of right, undoubtable? And if not, what command over truth would this kind of theology really lose if, instead of absolute certainty, she only claimed reasonable probability for her conclusions? So here he's advocating that in religious dogmatism, we not claim absolute certainty, but only reasonable probability for the conclusions. He goes on, If we claim only reasonable probability, it will be as much as men who love the truth can ever at any given moment hope to have within their grasp. Pretty surely, it will be more than we could have had if we were unconscious of our liability to err. So here he's saying that even within a religious context, keeping our minds open to new information because we already know that the human mind we're using is not perfect is a superior attitude to have over dogmatism, which is claiming that we already know the truth and so we're not going to change our mind no matter what new information is presented to us. William James goes on, Nevertheless, dogmatism, i.e. those who are dogmatic in their beliefs, 
Nevertheless, dogmatism will doubtless continue to condemn us for this confession. William James has no illusions. He knows that those who are dogmatic will never accept what it is he's proposing, even though it seems to make absolute logical sense. He says, nevertheless, dogmatism will doubtless continue to condemn us for this confession. The mere outward form of inalterable certainty, i.e. those who are dogmatic, is so precious to some minds that to renounce it explicitly is for them out of the question. They will claim it even where the facts most patently pronounce its folly. So here William James is making the observation that those who are dogmatic will claim dogmatism even where the facts most patently pronounce its folly. In other words, where the facts show that they're obviously wrong in whatever dogmatic belief they have, they will claim dogmatism even when it's obvious by the facts that they're wrong. William James goes on, But the safe thing is surely to recognize that all the insights of creatures of a day like ourselves must be provisional. The wisest of critics is an altering being. So in other words, no matter how wise a person is, that person is an altering being, subject to the better insight of the morrow. When larger ranges of truth open, it is surely best to be able to open ourselves to their reception, unfettered by our previous pretensions. So William James argues that acknowledging the imperfectness of the human mind and understanding religious truths is a better way of being open to new religious truth than the dogmatic position that what we know is already absolutely correct and not susceptible to change. I think that most people in the abstract would have a hard time disagreeing with William James in what he's saying here. The issue, though, is that when you're dealing with people who are dogmatic in their religious beliefs, it is much harder for such people to see that what he's saying makes any sense. So I've already mentioned that from a religious perspective, it is seen as a strength to not be open to change, regardless of what new facts may be presented, but also that any change that may have occurred in the particular religion is either ignored or explained away as not really a change at all. This is a necessary corollary from the religious perspective. If religion and doctrine cannot change, then any changes that may have happened in the past must be ignored or explained away as not a change at all. Let me tell you about an experience I had in my high priest group a number of years ago. The teacher was in front of the class and he was teaching from the manual about how the doctrine of the church never changes. And as he was teaching this idea to the class, the thought that came to my mind was, what about polygamy? Polygamy is an obvious example within Mormonism of a huge change that occurred in the church. And I waited in that class while the teacher was going on about how the doctrine never changes to see if anybody else in the class would raise their hand or make a comment or challenge what he was saying in any way. But nobody did. I waited to the point where the teacher was going on to another subject and I raised my hand and I said, excuse me, am I the only person in this class who's ever heard of polygamy? As soon as I said that, it was like the ice broke. And all around me, other members of the class are chuckling and nodding their heads because they knew about polygamy too. Of course they knew about polygamy. What Mormon doesn't know about polygamy? And yet, while the teacher was teaching that the church never changes and the doctrine never changes, nobody wanted to bring up that subject. Nobody wanted to challenge this idea because this has become woven into Mormonism as well, that the doctrine never changes. 
Even when the change in polygamy is acknowledged, it is common to say that the practice ceased, but the doctrine remains unchanged. How many of you have heard that distinction being made? The point behind the distinction is to say doctrine never changes. You see, this idea that doctrine never changes and it must always remain the same has infiltrated into Mormonism as well. This is a way of saying that the doctrine is eternal and that the church really didn't change its doctrine. But really, this is in spite of the fact that plural marriage went from being required for the highest level of exaltation to being something that if you practiced, you were excommunicated which seems a pretty big change indeed. The fact is that religion in general, and Mormonism in particular, has indeed changed dramatically over its relatively brief existence. Charles Harrell wrote a book called This Is My Doctrine, which I recommend highly. It systematically and categorically goes over all the areas in which Mormonism has changed its doctrine over the years. There is virtually no area of doctrine that has not changed in Mormonism over the years. And as I said, in relation to polygamy, the way Mormonism has traditionally handled change is not to talk about it and pretend that no change has happened, which when you think about it is a very Protestant way of handling things. What I mean by that is that Mormonism has adopted the Protestant idea that doctrine never changes. That's the strength of doctrine and it is therefore not susceptible to being changed even when confronted with new facts. So then, when compared with religion, science is able to grow, but religion becomes root-bound. Like a tree that's planted in the ground, science can spread its roots as far as it needs to for the tree to grow however high the tree needs to grow. But religion is like a tree that's planted in a box. The roots cannot grow outward and must remain in the confines of the box, with the result that the roots curl in upon themselves. It becomes root-bound. Nothing new can be learned that does not already exist in the pre-existing box in which the tree is planted. And the result for the tree is that it sickens and eventually dies. The only new doctrines that can be admitted into the box are doctrines that can somehow be fit into the root-bound root structure. And those kinds of doctrines are going to be few and far between and largely inconsequential. Everything must be made to harmonize with everything else. Looked at another way, the LDS Church is built upon the idea of continuing revelation. It's even in one of our articles of faith in our scriptures. But if you really believe in continuing revelation, you have to be open to the idea that your current beliefs could be completely overturned at any point by new revelation. If you don't believe that your current beliefs could be completely overturned, then you really don't believe in continuing revelation. You believe only in revelation that will confirm you in what you believe already. So going back to Joseph Smith now and his contradictions of himself, which we will get to here in a few minutes. Joseph Smith contradicted himself time and time again. But as a result, his theology was expansive and growing. And what I'm going to suggest here is that the fact his theology was expansive and growing, especially during the Nauvoo period, was a direct result of Joseph Smith's willingness to contradict himself, to overturn pre-existing belief systems and paradigms, even when he himself had instituted those pre-existing belief systems and paradigms, and even when he himself had enshrined those pre-existing beliefs and paradigms in Scripture. Now, critics 
of Joseph Smith will see this as a flaw. They will say he could not contradict himself and be a true prophet because that would mean something he taught earlier was wrong. Apologists, on the other hand, for Joseph Smith will also see this as a flaw. They will say that he could not have contradicted himself and therefore apologists will come up with a myriad of different ways to explain why the contradictions are not really contradictions. But both of these views, the critic and the apologist, are coming from the same mindset. They're coming from a religious mindset, i.e. that doctrine cannot and should not change. But if we step away from being a critic of Joseph Smith or an apologist for Joseph Smith, if we choose to not look at his contradictions from a religious point of view, but instead from a scientific viewpoint, we can begin to see Joseph Smith's contradictions as a strength. Regardless of what you may think about Joseph Smith's doctrine or the truth of what he taught, it is undeniable that his theology was growing and expansive. And now for the list of seven examples where Joseph Smith contradicted himself. Example number one, the idea that the Book of Mormon contains the fullness of the gospel. This isn't just an idea. This is enshrined in Scripture, specifically Doctrine and Covenants, section 20, verses 8 and 9, which talks about the Book of Mormon and says it contains a record of a fallen people and the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and to the Jews also. And yet, Joseph Smith had no problem adding all sorts of additional elements of the gospel far above and beyond those mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Many examples come to mind. The idea of three degrees of glory, the idea of the premortal existence, temple work for the dead, temple ordinances for the living, the idea that God is a resurrected being, the idea that humans can become gods, just to name a few. The fact that the Doctrine and Covenants declares the Book of Mormon to contain the fullness of the gospel, even though all sorts of additional ideas were added later, many of which were taught by Joseph Smith as being essential to exaltation that are not found in the Book of Mormon, has frequently been used as a whipping boy by critics of the church. But apart from that, it is very clear that many uniquely LDS doctrines are not found in the Book of Mormon in spite of the fact that LDS scripture proclaims the Book of Mormon is containing the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The point here being that Joseph Smith's view was expansive. He was more interested in expanding the horizons of theology than he was in being constricted to conform with doctrines that had already been given, even if it was he himself who had given them and even if he himself had given them in Scripture. A second example has to do with the nature of God. The Book of Mormon, dictated in 1829 and published in 1830, presents a fairly Trinitarian concept of God. The Trinitarian formula that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are one God appears throughout the Book of Mormon and even on the title page. In addition to that, let me tell you about the first time I read the Book of Mormon through when I was 18 years old. I had just been baptized into the church a few months before. I'm reading in the Book of Mosiah, chapter 15. I'm coming to the words of Abinadi, where he is talking to the priests of Noah, and he makes these comments, which sound an awful lot like a Trinitarian version of God, in which he identifies God as both the Father and the Son. Here's what it says. Verses 1-4, through four, Mosiah 15. And now, Abinadi said unto them, I would that ye should understand that God himself, God himself, shall come down among the children of men and shall redeem his people. 
That sounds a lot like it's saying that God and Jesus Christ are the same person because it's Jesus Christ who's going to come down and redeem his people. He goes on in verse 2, And because he dwelleth in flesh, he shall be called the Son of God. And having subjected the flesh to the will of the Father, being the Father and the Son, the Father because he was conceived by the power of God, and the Son because of the flesh, thus becoming the Father and Son, and they are one God, yea, the very eternal Father of heaven and of earth. Well, when I read this, I was very confused because I had taken the missionary discussions before I was baptized. I knew that the church taught that the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the Son also, and the Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit. I knew we believed in three beings in the Godhead. Why is it that the Book of Mormon sounds very different than what the church teaches. I remember asking this to my good friend who actually baptized me. His name is Bruce. I pointed out this passage in Mosiah chapter 15 and I asked, what on earth is going on here? It sounds like Abinadi is talking about the Trinity. Bruce's response was really just to say, well, look, we know what the truth is and the truth is what the church teaches today. And so if Abinadi sounds like He's not teaching that, then we're just misunderstanding what he's saying because obviously he would be teaching the same thing that the church teaches today. It was not a very good response and it was not very satisfying, but it was the best that he could do. So I bought into that for a while. So here we have the Book of Mormon, dictated 1829, published 1830, teaching what really does appear to be a Trinitarian version of the Godhead. And that exists in Mormonism up until 1835 with the lectures on faith. The Lectures on Faith were a series of lectures that were given to the School of the Prophets in 1834 and 1835 in Kirtland, Ohio. And the Lectures on Faith assumed authoritative status when they were published in the first version, 1835, the first version of the Doctrine and Covenants. In fact, the Lectures on Faith were published in the first half of the Doctrine and Covenants, and the revelations that we normally associate with what's in the Doctrine and Covenants were published in the second half of the Doctrine and Covenants. Not only that, the Lectures on Faith were the Doctrine in the Doctrine and Covenants. That's why the Book of Doctrine and Covenants has that name. It's Doctrine, the Lectures on Faith, and Covenants, the Revelations. The Lectures on Faith were published with the Doctrine and Covenants for almost a hundred years until they were removed in 1921 without a vote of the church membership. And the reason they were removed has to do with the contents of Lecture on Faith number 5, which is the shortest of the seven lectures and by far the most controversial. Because Lecture on Faith number 5 deals with the Godhead. And when it talks about the Godhead, it doesn't talk about the Trinitarian version of the Godhead that we see in the Book of Mormon. And it doesn't talk about the three people in the Godhead that we're familiar with from the current edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. Instead, it talks about Two beings, T-W-O, two beings, two personages in the Godhead, the Father and the Son. You ask, what happened to the Holy Ghost? Well, the Holy Ghost hasn't been really formulated yet as far as doctrine goes. Instead, it's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, in the lectures on faith, is not a personage. Instead, it is this amorphous thing which constitutes the mind that is shared between the Father in the Son. Here's what it says. We shall in this lecture speak of the Godhead. We mean the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Next line. There are two personages who constitute the great, matchless, governing, and supreme power over all things. They are the Father and the Son. The Father 
being a personage of spirit. Wait a second, I thought the Father is a being of tabernacle. I thought the Father had a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. No, not in the lectures on faith. In the lectures on faith, the Father is a being. He is a personage, but he is a personage of spirit. The Son, however, going on in lecture on faith number five, the Son, who was in the bosom of the Father, a personage of tabernacle. And then you go down a bit and you see that in speaking of Jesus Christ, he is the only begotten of the Father, possessing the same mind with the Father, which mind is the Holy Spirit. So in 1835, published with the first edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, and in every edition of the Doctrine and Covenants up until 1921, is a statement of doctrine that says the Godhead consists of two beings, the Father and the Son. The Father is a personage of spirit, the Son is a personage of tabernacle, and the Holy Spirit is not a separate and third personage, but simply an amorphous substance that constitutes the mind shared by the Father and the Son. So in the lectures on faith given in 1835 and published in 1835 in the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph Smith contradicts the Trinitarian version of the Godhead, which is set forth in the Book of Mormon. But Joseph Smith is not done yet. Seven years later, after the first edition of the Doctrine and Covenants is published, in 1842, Joseph Smith teaches a new concept of the Godhead, one that contradicts not only the lectures on faith, but also the Book of Mormon. And that is in section 130 of the Doctrine and Covenants. I've quoted it before. Most LDS have heard it many times and can quote it themselves. The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the Son also. The Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit. So now there are three beings in the Godhead. The Holy Ghost has gone from just being the mind that is shared between the Father and the Son, as in the lectures on faith, is now his own personage, who is a personage of spirit. And the Father has gone from being a personage of spirit to having a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. Joseph Smith was not just making changes for the sake of making changes. What he was doing was he was making the changes and the contradictions in order to accommodate new information, new inspiration, new revelation that he felt he was receiving. It was in the Nauvoo period in 1842 that Joseph Smith began to understand that God has not been God forever, but that God is actually a resurrected being from a previous world. That is why Joseph Smith changed the doctrine that God now is no longer a personage of spirit, but has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. In spite of the fact that President Hinckley, in an interview he gave, hedged on the question of whether Mormons teach that God was once a man, the fact is that concept is enshrined, albeit tangentially, in Doctrine and Covenants section 130, because when it says that God has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, it is saying that God is a resurrected being. Otherwise, he would not have a body. And if it's saying that God is a resurrected being, well, he had to be resurrected from somewhere. And that somewhere is from a prior earth where he lived in mortality. So actually, the idea that God did live once in mortality is in Mormon scripture, and it's in Doctrine and Covenants section 130. A third example of doctrines that changed over time has to do with the question of the salvation for those who have died without having the opportunity to hear the gospel. This was a burning question for Joseph Smith. And it's a question that gets a number of different answers 
throughout his prophetic ministry? The first answer is given in the Book of Mormon, not just in one place in the Book of Mormon, but in two places in the Book of Mormon. And it basically says that if a person, through no fault of their own, ends up dying without hearing the law or hearing the gospel, then they will be saved through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Period. End of story. The first place this appears is in 2 Nephi chapter 9, verses 25-26, through 26, which says, Wherefore he, God, has given a law, and where there is no law given, there is no punishment. And where there is no punishment, there is no condemnation. And where there is no condemnation, the mercies of the Holy One of Israel have claim upon them because of the atonement, for they are delivered by the power of Him. Verse 26 makes it even clearer. For the atonement satisfies the demands of His justice upon all those who have not the law given to them, that they are delivered from that awful monster, death and hell and the devil and the lake of fire and brimstone which is endless torment and they are restored to that God who gave them breath which is the Holy One of Israel. So in Second Nephi chapter 9 those who die without the law there's no punishment there's no condemnation because the mercies of the Holy One of Israel have claim upon them because of the atonement and they are delivered by the power of him. This idea is reiterated in King Benjamin's speech in the first chapters of Mosiah, specifically Mosiah chapter 3, verse 11, which says, For behold, and also his blood, Jesus' blood, his blood atoneth for the sins of those who have fallen by the transgression of Adam, who have died not knowing the will of God concerning them, or who have ignorantly sinned. So those who sinned, but they didn't know they were sinning because they didn't have the law given to them, or because they didn't know the will of God concerning them, the blood of Christ atones for their sins. So it's the same idea given in Second Nephi chapter 9 and in Mosiah chapter 3, that those who die without having received the law or knowing the gospel are saved through the mercy of Jesus Christ and through his blood. Nothing else is required. Two years later in section 76, where Joseph Smith receives a vision of the three degrees of glory, this concept is addressed again except that those who die without law in section 76 are not saved in the celestial kingdom with God, the Father. Instead, they are assigned to the terrestrial kingdom. And here's what it says in verses 71 through 72. And again, we saw the terrestrial world. And behold and lo, these are they who are of the terrestrial. It goes on to describe a few things about them. But in 72, it says, behold, these are they who died without law. And verse 73 says, And also, they are the spirits of men kept in prison, whom the Son visited and preached the gospel unto them, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. So these are they who died without law, without a knowledge of the gospel in the terrestrial world, even though they were in spirit prison and Jesus visited them, and preach the gospel unto them. Now this is very confusing to a modern Mormon who is looking at everything through temple ordinances and temple work for the dead. Because we understand today that yes, Jesus went and preached the gospel to those who were in spirit prison, who died without having the opportunity in this life to hear the gospel. We understand today that that work continues in the spirit world and that there are those who die who were members of the church, who become missionaries to those who never heard about the gospel. They preach the gospel to them in the spirit world. And if they accept the gospel in the spirit world, that's not enough. They have to accept the ordinances that are performed for them with the temple work for the dead in the temple. And if they accept those ordinances, then they don't go to the terrestrial world, as Doctrine and Covenants section 76 says. Instead, they go to the celestial kingdom. They go to the highest kingdom. So it's very difficult when we're looking at 
the idea of temple work for the dead, to see these verses in Doctrine and Covenants section 76 and make any sense out of them whatsoever. Because once again, Doctrine and Covenants section 76 says that in the terrestrial world are those who died without law and also those to whom Jesus preached the gospel in spirit prison. These concepts make no sense today because the idea today is that everybody ultimately is going to have the chance to hear the gospel, whether in this life or in the next life, and make their own independent decision as to whether they're going to accept it or reject it. So nobody ultimately is going to be those who died without law. But that concept of temple work for the dead did not exist in 1832. It did not exist in 1830 in the Book of Mormon. Instead, it was first introduced in 1840 with the idea of baptism for the dead, which became the first ordinance of salvation that was performed by the Latter-day Saints for their deceased relatives. And it was after 1840 that additional ordinance work for the dead was introduced. But before we get to 1840, there's another scripture in between 1832, Doctrine and Covenants section 76, and 1840 with the introduction of baptism for the dead. And that is Doctrine and Covenants section 137. This was given in 1836. So keeping track of this, we have the Book of Mormon dictated in 1829 that says that those who die without law are delivered from death and hell by the atonement. We have Doctrine and Covenants section 76 in 1832 that says that those who die without law are in the terrestrial kingdom, not in the celestial and that also in the terrestrial kingdom are those to whom Jesus preached the gospel in the spirit world. Now we have, four years after that, 1836, a vision of Joseph Smith that ends up getting canonized as Doctrine and Covenants section 137. This is where Joseph Smith receives a vision of the celestial kingdom of God. That's verse 1. It's important to keep that in mind. This is not of any other kingdoms, just the celestial kingdom of God. And the main thrust of this is that Joseph Smith receives this vision and he sees in the celestial kingdom of God his brother Alvin. Alvin was Joseph Smith's older brother and he died before the restoration of the gospel occurred. Alvin died in the 1820s and Joseph Smith says in verse 6 that he marveled how it was that he had obtained an inheritance in that kingdom, the celestial kingdom, the highest kingdom, seeing that he had departed this life before the Lord had set his hand to gather Israel the second time and had not been baptized for the remission of sins. Now consider this. What Joseph Smith has received in 1832 is section 76, the vision of the three degrees of glory, in which it says those who died without law are in the terrestrial world. Now, four years later, He's receiving a vision in which he sees Alvin, who died without law, in the celestial kingdom. So his vision that he's receiving in 1836 is contradicting on this point the vision he received in 1832. Joseph Smith marvels how that could be. And in verse 7, this is what Joseph Smith records. Thus came the voice of the Lord unto me, saying, All who have died without a knowledge of this gospel, who would have received it, if they had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. So this is how Alvin can be there in the celestial kingdom. He died without receiving a knowledge of the gospel, but he would have received it if he had been permitted to tarry. So that's how he gets saved in the celestial kingdom of God. 
And it really doesn't make any difference to Joseph Smith what the Book of Mormon says about it. And it really doesn't make any difference to Joseph Smith what Section 76 says about it that he'd received only four years earlier. Joseph Smith is receiving new visions and new information, and he appears to see no problem contradicting earlier revelations in order to accommodate the new information he's receiving. He is looking at things not from the religious point of view, where doctrine cannot change, but from the scientific point of view, where currently existing paradigms can be overturned with the receipt of new information and revelation. But in section 137, Joseph Smith not only says that all who have died without a knowledge of this gospel, who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. He says, also, all that shall die henceforth without a knowledge of it, who would have received it with all their hearts, shall be heirs of that kingdom, i.e. the celestial kingdom of God. So, according to the revelation given in 1836, everybody who ever lived who would have received the gospel with all their hearts is going to be in the celestial kingdom. And from this point forward in 1836, everybody who in the future dies without hearing the gospel, who would have received it with all their hearts, shall be saved in the celestial kingdom of God. I need to read that language once again because this is important. Also, all that shall die henceforth without a knowledge of it who would have received it with all their hearts, shall be heirs of that kingdom. The reason that's important language is because, even though it says, all that shall die henceforth, that really only exists for the next four years. Because this is given in 1836, and in 1840, baptism for the dead will be introduced, and it will be necessary for those who have died not only to accept the gospel in the spirit world, but also to accept the baptism performed for them, by proxy in the temple. So here, section 137, verse 8, not only contradicts what went before, but temple work will contradict the same verse four years later. Fascinatingly, in the same section of the Doctrine and Covenants, section 137, part of the same vision, 1836, verse 10, just two verses later, says, And I also beheld that all children who die before they arrive at the years of accountability are saved in the celestial kingdom of God. Now this is a doctrine that survives in the LDS Church. It is currently taught as official doctrine in the LDS Church. And in fact, because of this doctrine in the LDS Church, which is not changed, temple work for the dead is not done for people who die before they arrive at the years of accountability, or in other words, eight years old. So we have the interesting situation where verse 8 of section 137, given in 1836, has been overridden by the temple work for the dead. We no longer believe that all those who die without a knowledge of the gospel, who would have received it with all their hearts, shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom. We believe that it has to be preached to them in the spirit world, they have to accept it, and then they have to accept the ordinances that are performed for them in the temple in order to be heirs of the celestial kingdom. So even though verse 8 of section 137 has been overridden by subsequent revelation, verse 10 of the same section has not been overridden. And without going into any detail of the problems that verse 10 raises in current Mormon theology, I want to at least raise this question and propose the possibility that just as verse 8 was overridden by subsequent revelation, is it possible that verse 10 should also be considered to have been overridden by subsequent revelation. And what I'm suggesting is, should the idea that children who die before the age of eight are saved in the celestial kingdom of God be considered to have been superseded by temple work in the same way 
that verse 8, all those who die without a knowledge of the gospel, who would have received it with all their hearts, being saved in the celestial kingdom, has been overridden by temple work. Example number four is about the eternal nature of God. It's very common among Christians of Joseph Smith's day as well as Christians of our day to believe that God is God from everlasting to everlasting. He is always God. He doesn't change. And we find that concept in the Book of Mormon. Moroni chapter 7 verse 22 says, For behold, God knowing all things being from everlasting to everlasting. But in 1844, Joseph Smith contradicts that idea that God is from everlasting to everlasting. In his King Follett discourse delivered just several months before his death, he says, I am going to tell you how God came to be God. We have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea and take away the veil so that you may see. And as most people know, the King Follett Discourse is where Joseph Smith introduces the idea that God is a progressing being who had dwelt on an earth prior to this and become a resurrected being, that he was not always God. And yet, in introducing this idea, Joseph Smith was put in the position of having to contradict revelation that he had given previously in the Book of Mormon, stating that God is from everlasting to everlasting. Joseph Smith appeared to have no problem doing that if the goal was to overturn the existing paradigm, to accept new knowledge and new revelation. And that quote I gave you from the King Follett Discourse can be found in Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 345. Example number five is the Book of Abraham in chapter three, where it's talking about the different intelligences or spirits that exist with God, and God is the one who is the most intelligent of them all. God is at the top of the intelligence food chain. Abraham chapter three, verse 19 says, and the Lord said unto me, these two facts do exist, that there are two spirits, one being more intelligent than the other. There shall be another more intelligent than they. I am the Lord thy God. I am more intelligent than they all. That is from the book of Abraham. But in the sermon at the grove that Joseph Smith gave, it's his last recorded sermon. It was given just a month or so before his death in June of 1844. Teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, page 373. Joseph Smith elaborates upon that, contradicts it, expands upon it. And what he contradicts is the idea given in the book of Abraham that God is more intelligent than they all, that God is at the top. There is nobody more intelligent than God. And Joseph Smith knows that he's elaborating and contradicting this idea because he refers specifically to this passage from Abraham. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 373, the sermon at the grove, Joseph Smith said, I learned a testimony concerning Abraham, and he reasoned concerning the God of heaven. In order to do that, said he, suppose we have two facts, that supposes another fact may exist, Two men on the earth, one wiser than the other, would logically show that another who is wiser than the wisest may exist. Intelligences exist one above another. And here's the point where Joseph Smith elaborates and says, so that there is no end to them. No longer is he going to go along with Abraham who says God is the most intelligent of them all. Now he's going to say, no, it continues even above God. There are intelligences above God, beings above God. And this is the sermon in which he introduces his concept of the eternal regression of gods. He teaches that God the Father himself has a father and that he has a father. And so in order to do that, he has to break through the box that he had given in the book of Abraham. 
in scripture that God is the most intelligent of them all. Now God is no longer the most intelligent of them all, but there is a being who is even more intelligent than God and a being who's more intelligent than that being and so on to infinity. Example number six. We know from Doctrine and Covenants section 76 that it teaches that the celestial kingdom is the highest kingdom of glory. Section 76 verse 70 says, these are they whose bodies are celestial, whose glory is that of the sun, even the glory of God the highest of all. And once again, we can see how Joseph Smith's sermon at the grove contradicts section 76 verse 70 because there it refers to God as the highest of all. Well, at the sermon at the grove, God is no longer the highest of all. That will be contradicted by the sermon at the grove. But it also teaches in 7670 that the celestial kingdom is the highest of all the kingdoms where God dwells whose glory the sun of the firmament is written up as being typical. Once again, section 76 given in 1832. But in 1842, Joseph Smith intimates strongly, dare I say teaches, that just as there are beings higher than God, the Father, there are also kingdoms higher than the celestial. Now he doesn't come out and say it directly, but the implication is obvious in Doctrine and Covenants section 131 verses 9 through 11. And here's what it says. This earth in its sanctified and immortal state will be made like unto crystal and will be a Urim and Thummim to the inhabitants who dwell thereon, whereby all things pertaining to an inferior kingdom or all kingdoms of a lower order will be manifest to those who dwell on it and this earth will be Christ's. So this is the idea that the earth will be made in its celestial state like a sea of glass and people who dwell on it can look down into it and they can see all things pertaining to kingdoms of a lower order. All that makes sense. All that is consistent with everything that Joseph Smith had said prior to this. However, then he gets to verse 10 and 11 where he says, Then the white stone mentioned in Revelation 2.17 will become a Urim and Thummim to each individual who receives one whereby things pertaining to a higher order of kingdoms will be made known. Well, wait a second. Are we really talking about people in the celestial kingdom receiving this white stone? If they're in the celestial kingdom, which is the highest kingdom, how can they look in the white stone and know about things pertaining to a higher order of kingdoms unless there is a higher order of kingdoms above the celestial kingdom. As if to answer that question, verse 11 says, and a white stone is given to each of those who come into the celestial kingdom. So we know that this is talking about those who go into the celestial kingdom. And we know that this section is talking about a higher order of kingdoms separate and apart from and above the celestial kingdom. So even as Joseph Smith contradicted himself later on in his ministry by talking about gods above God the Father, he also contradicted himself later on in his ministry by talking about kingdoms higher than the celestial kingdom. Finally, contradiction seven is a very obvious example, but it's one that bears repeating. It is the example of polygamy. We know that in Jacob two of the book of Mormon, polygamy is condemned as an abomination before the Lord. And in fact, it reproves the Nephites who are practicing polygamy for trying to justify that practice by the example of David and Solomon. Here's what it says. This is Jacob two twenty three. But the word of God burdens me because of your grosser crimes. For behold, thus saith the Lord, this people begin to wax in iniquity. They understand not the scriptures, for they seek to excuse themselves in committing whoredoms because of the things which are written concerning David and Solomon, his son. But Doctrine and Covenants, section 132, given in 1843, 13 years later, after the Book of Mormon came off the press, completely contradicts that. And not only does it contradict the idea of polygamy, 
going from saying it is abominable before the Lord, but it also, strangely, seeks to justify the practice by going back to David and Solomon, the very same two people that the Book of Mormon says, hey, you shouldn't be trying to excuse yourself in committing these whoredoms based upon their example. Doctrine and Covenants, section 132, verse 1 says, Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, my servant Joseph, that inasmuch as you have inquired of my hand to know and understand wherein I, the Lord, justified my servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as also Moses, David, and Solomon, my servants, as touching the principle and doctrine of their having many wives and concubines. So the practice of polygamy goes from something that scripture produced by Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon, in 1830, condemns as a whoredom, and says you shouldn't try and justify it based upon David and Solomon, now in 1843 becomes something that is commanded of the Lord for his servants to practice, and the Lord justifies the practice by reference to David and Solomon. So that's the last of the seven examples of places where Joseph Smith contradicted himself over and over again during the brief period of his 15-year prophetic ministry. Again, in all these examples, critics will see these as evidence that Joseph Smith was not a prophet because he contradicted himself. Apologists, on the other hand, will seek to gloss over or explain away the obvious contradictions. That's because both the critic and the apologist view these contradictions from a religious point of view that says that doctrine cannot change. But from a scientific viewpoint, we see that Joseph Smith was not root-bound. When he talked about receiving further light and knowledge, it is apparent that he was comfortable with new knowledge completely overturning and revolutionizing concepts and doctrine that he himself had instituted, even when those concepts were enshrined in scripture. Learning line upon line, precept on precept, did not mean for Joseph Smith that the new knowledge had to be fit in the pre-existing box. New knowledge could burst the bands of the pre-existing box and create new room for the roots to grow. The way Joseph Smith approached contradictions was similar to the way that Walt Whitman wrote about contradictions. Walt Whitman, of course, was a contemporary of Joseph Smith, and here's what he said famously. Do I contradict myself? Very well then. I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. In the same way, Joseph Smith had no problem contradicting himself, and he apparently was large and may have contained multitudes as well. And it is just possible that Joseph Smith meant to do this. In other words, that he meant to contradict himself, that he was aware that he was contradicting himself and that he intentionally contradicted himself. And it is possible that he was doing this consciously because of his aversion to creeds. Now, a creed is a formal statement of religious belief, which ends up becoming enshrined as the truth and which cannot be moved past because it has already established the truth. It is creedal statements that are synonymous to the dogma talked about by William James. Joseph Smith disliked creeds so much that in his 1838 account of the first vision, he has Jesus Christ saying that the creeds of Christianity were all an abomination in his sight, and those who professed those creeds, the professors thereof, were all corrupt. You can't get language much stronger than that. And whether you look at this as Joseph Smith putting those words in Jesus' mouth, or Jesus actually saying those words to Joseph Smith, the final result is the same, is that Joseph Smith had an extreme aversion 
to creeds. He talked about that later in his ministry. In Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 327, Joseph Smith says, I want to come up into the presence of God and learn all things. But the creeds set up stakes and say, Hitherto shalt thou come and no further, which I cannot subscribe to. This is why Joseph Smith hated Creed so much, because they set up stakes, said this is all the truth, you can't have any more truth, you have to stop here, and he says, I cannot subscribe to that idea. Joseph Smith's idea was to continue expanding, to continue growing, to continue learning, even when his new information contradicted a previous creedal statement that he himself had given. So I want to ask the question, is it possible that Joseph Smith saw the danger of any authoritative pronouncement that he gave as assuming the status of a creed. We know Joseph Smith didn't like creeds. We know that the LDS Church continues to talk about the first vision and Jesus' words about not liking creeds. So the Latter-day Saint Church has an official position of not liking creeds. But on the other hand, the Latter-day Saint Church has many, many creedal statements which are set forward and are accepted as the final truth the final word on the subject that cannot be contradicted, that cannot be transcended, in effect that are exactly what Joseph Smith described as creeds, saying, the creeds set up stakes and say, hitherto shalt thou come and no further, which I cannot subscribe to. An obvious example of a latter-day creedal statement is the proclamation to the world on the family, which is treated as a creedal statement. It is the final word. It will never change, at least according to the church today. And in this way, the creedal statements of the LDS Church today become exactly the kind of creedal statements that Joseph Smith hated because they set up stakes to learning. They set up stakes to new information. They set up stakes to new knowledge. And they basically set up stakes to saying God cannot reveal any information beyond what the creeds already say. At its heart, the problem is that as soon as you think you know the answer to something, you close yourself off from learning anything more. That's why Joseph Smith hated creeds. Joseph Smith did not see the King James Version as having the last word. He did a complete inspired translation of the King James Version, which he continued to work on and revise throughout his entire life. Joseph Smith also did not even see himself as having the last word on any doctrinal position. He was open to new information and was willing to completely revolutionize his prior position in order to accommodate that new information. In this way, Joseph Smith looked at doctrine more from a scientific point of view than a religious point of view. And his view had all the strengths of being open to new information while lacking the religious strength of not being open to new information. Joseph Smith produced the Book of Mormon at the very beginning of his prophetic ministry. It was his magnum opus. In its first printed edition, it comprised 600 pages that Joseph Smith dictated. Now, if someone was going to sit down and write a story about Joseph Smith, and he produces the Book of Mormon, which is a completely new book of Scripture, which he considers to be Scripture on a par with the Bible, but he produces it himself, and he lives for 14 years after it comes off the press, most people writing that story would look at it and say, well, here's what Joseph Smith is going to do. He's going to carry around this Book of Mormon, and he's going to teach out of the Book of Mormon, and he's going to present his new doctrines and support them by the doctrines that he himself had placed in the Book of Mormon. But historically... That's not what happened. In fact, exactly the opposite happened. Once Joseph Smith produced the Book of Mormon, he put it to one side. Joseph Smith never goes back to the Book of Mormon. 
to teach from its pages. He never goes on to teach doctrines and say, well, this is what it says in the Book of Mormon, as support for what he taught. Instead, Joseph Smith leaves the Book of Mormon to the missionaries to go out and spread copies of it throughout the countryside and try and gain new converts, and Joseph Smith is often running on to the next thing. He is after new information. He's after new knowledge. He's after new information. And in many points, the new information that he received ended up contradicting what was contained in the Book of Mormon, as we have already shown. Now, Joseph Smith could have produced the Book of Mormon and restricted everything else he said after that to make it conform with what was written in the Book of Mormon. That would have been the safe thing for him to do. It would have been the thing we would expect him to do, and it would have been the religious thing for him to do. It would have been the root-bound thing for him to do. What it would not have been was an avenue to expanding understanding of truth and knowledge. Instead, if he had done that, it would have limited everything he said after it to what was contained in the Book of Mormon so that nothing he said after it could contradict the Book of Mormon. Instead of being expansive and expanding, his subsequent doctrine would have ended up being limited by the Book of Mormon he had previously given. Instead, Joseph Smith produces the Book of Mormon and almost immediately leaves it behind and never teaches any doctrines from its pages. This fact has been commented on frequently, but perhaps the reason for it is that Joseph Smith was too busy exploring new ideas and inspirations to spend time explicating the Book of Mormon and getting tied up with making everything he taught subsequently conform to its pages. Are there any lessons that we can learn from Joseph Smith's approach to doctrine? from the fact that he was willing to contradict himself multiple times in order to accommodate new information that he was receiving. I think that there are a few. First, the LDS Church has left behind Joseph Smith's view of contradicting himself in order to incorporate new information. The LDS Church, instead, is much more Protestant in its view and has adopted the view that once something is doctrine, it always has to remain doctrine. It cannot change because that is a sign of the truth of the doctrine. It's first important to realize that is not how Joseph Smith viewed things. Whether you agree with him or not in this matter, it is clear that the founding prophet of the LDS Church saw doctrine as something that was only provisional, in the words of William James, something that was only temporary, and something that was susceptible to being overturned and changed in the light of receiving new information that contradicted it. In this way, the LDS Church has really become the Mormon brand of Protestantism. Could the church today learn anything from Joseph Smith's attitude about doctrine? I will suggest that the church, yes, could learn from this attitude. The church today has a number of issues that confront it. Women in the priesthood, recognition of gay marriage, to name only two. And what the church could learn today from Joseph Smith's attitude is that the church is completely free to overturn itself on issues such as women in the priesthood and gay marriage. The church today could announce that it has received new revelation that says that women can receive the priesthood. In doing so, they would not be out of line with Joseph Smith. Instead, they would be following in his footsteps. They would be addressing doctrine as something that is completely changeable and susceptible to being contradicted and overturned based upon receiving new information and new revelation. I am not saying that the church should do this, that's up to the church to do. What I would like the church to understand is that they are not hogtied to the past, that they are not required to continue to teach something 
as doctrine just because it is something that they have taught as doctrine before. In the same way, the church could change today on its issue of gay marriage. They could say, we will recognize gay marriage and that people can be in gay marriages and be fully faithful and accepted members of the LDS church. The church does not do that because it is stuck in this rut of continuing to do things today just because it is the way the church has always done it. They are going to maintain this doctrine into the future just because it's the way they did it in the past. If they change the doctrine from the past, then they feel that they will lose their religious authority as prophets of God. But if they learn the lesson from Joseph Smith, a true prophet, if Joseph Smith was a true prophet, and nobody has to believe that more than the current leadership of the LDS Church, if Joseph Smith was a true prophet, then the prophets today are at complete liberty to overturn anything and everything they've taught in the past as doctrine in order to accommodate and make room for further light and knowledge. In conclusion then, this is why I am suggesting that Joseph Smith's teachings were so expansive that they were growing, that they were alive and vibrant. And this is why it is that the current church's teachings are so restrictive and limited. Joseph Smith's ideas were expansive because he was willing to contradict himself. The church's teachings today are restrictive and limited because the church is not willing to contradict itself. The church today is root-bound in its doctrine. Joseph Smith in his day was anything but root-bound in his presentation of doctrine. And so, ironically, the church Joseph Smith founded has ended up becoming the exact same type of church Joseph Smith came to overthrow. And if Joseph Smith were to come back again today, it is unlikely Joseph Smith would even recognize the religion that he founded. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.